But every, every year, especially at the end of a decade, we look at things in history. There are special shows that show the best things that happened during the year, the most amazing things that happened during the decade. And, and there's no doubt that there's have been events that happened in history that changed the course and the world itself. For example, some of you might remember that on August of 1945, there was a bomb in Hiroshima. That bomb was the first time that nuclear power was used to destroy humanity. And that event changed the world. Maybe some of you remember in 1880. No, just kidding. Maybe some of you remember in, in 1990 when President Reagan said to President Gorbachev, tear down that wall. And with those words, the wall that divided the oppression of socialism from the reality of freedom began and changed the world. Another event that happened that changed the world was 9-11. You might remember it. Well, I think that on that day, if you were alive, you remember exactly where you were that day. Because it changed the world for us. But not just events that occurred changed the world, but also inventions have changed our world. For example, one of those inventions was a printing press. Imagine today when you have the ability to come to church with a book or a, a lot of books in your iPad. But you have a book in your hand or you can get one in front of you from the, from the pew because before the printing press was invented, all the writings were in papers, stacked in the scrolls or, or in papyruses or in uh, 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 parchments. Because books have not yet been invented. But when Gutenberg decided to put all these ideas together in one single volume, it changed the world. By the way, you know what was the first book that was ever printed? The Bible. The Bible. Imagine how revolutionary that was, that instead of carrying 66 scrolls, now they just had one book. Another invention that changed the world was the electric light. Electricity was already a thing, but light was a different story. And how it changed the world, that from that day on, candles were not needed to see in the dark. Today we have all kinds of technologies because of one day in 1880, someone decided to try electricity as a form of illumination. But there's another invention that changed the world. And that's the iPhone. I'm going to tell you how it changed the world. All of you know what it is. Most of you have one. Or a derivative of it because this was the first one. And there's some of us who, when we leave the house and we forget it, we feel naked. That's how it changed the world. But this morning, I want to suggest to you that there was one event that happened that changed 
everything. And this event happened in the year 33. Why did it change the world? How did it change the world? <laughs> because, see, the Bible tells us that in the year 33, there were only 120, how many? 120 followers of the way, followers of Christ. But today, today, there are 2.2 billion Christians in the world. Now, what does that mean? That there's more Christians than the whole country of China. There's more Christians today than the whole country of China and the whole continent of Europe together. There's more Christians today than the country of China, the whole continent of Europe, and the United States together. So the question is, how is it that from a group of 12, today the largest organization in the world exists? I'd like to suggest to you that Jesus changed everything. And the first reason why Jesus changed everything is that what Jesus taught his disciples is that today, I don't have to live with guilt and shame. And you know that one of the things why social media is so popular is because a lot of people have shame. And they want to cover it. They want to pretend that the reality is different. You know, I, I know a couple of people who uh, take pictures of themselves, of whatever they're eating, whatever they are, and they post it, and those pictures look amazing. The thing is that I know them, and I know that's not the reality. So there is something, there is something that they are trying to cover by social media. And I know you're questioning, does he know me? Does he know me? But, but see, the thing is this, that because a lot of us live with shame and guilt because of our past, because of bad choices, because of decisions, because of events that had happened in our life, we don't feel complete. But Jesus went to the cross to take care of all of that. Because see, in the garden, when the serpent deceived Eve, the first thing that humanity felt after disobeying and eating from the forbidden fruit, the first thing they felt was shame. The Bible, felt, uh, 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 the Bible says that they felt naked and they felt ashamed. And that is exactly the same feeling that the devil wants everyone to feel. The devil wants to make sure that you feel bad because of your sin, that you feel ashamed and you feel guilty. And as long as you feel that you are guilty, as long as you feel ashamed, the power of Jesus cannot work in your heart. Because the whole reason why Jesus went to the cross was to get rid of all that guilt, of all that shame. But he wants you to make sure that he did it for you. In Ephesians 1.7, it 
It says, He is so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom. He what? Purchased our freedom with the blood of His Son and forgave our sins. Now, I want to ask you a question this morning. Let's see if you're awake. Who killed Jesus? Okay, I see that there's different opinions. I'm going to give you two answers. Because both answers are right. The first one is that the Father did. Let's look at the Bible. Isaiah 53, 6. It's right there in your notes. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet, are you with me? Yet the Lord laid on him, him is who? Jesus, the sins of us all. The Father chose to give his only son so that all of us could enjoy freedom from guilt and shame. So the first answer is that God planned it. He designed it. And you know what's amazing? That the plan of redemption was designed even before the foundation of the world. God knew. God knew that by allowing us freedom of choice, the possibility of mistakes, the possibility of sin, the possibility of bad choices was imminent. And because His love is so great, so abundant, He did not want to leave it to chance. He created a plan of redemption in which someone without sin, perfect, unique, could be sacrificed for the love of everyone else. The second answer of who killed Jesus is my sin. Romans 4.25 says, He was handed over to die because of what? Of our sins. And He was raised to life to make us right with God. Every time we watch those movies of, of Eastern, you know, around Eastern, when Jesus is taken before Pilate, or when you watch the Bible series or whatever uh, Bible uh, movie you, you've watched, you've probably seen that Pilate is on top on a, on a chair and there's a, a set of stairs and Jesus is underneath. But the reality is that that is not how the praetorium is designed. In fact, a few months ago, we had opportunity to be there. It actually looks something like this. There's a door, a main door, and Pilate came out at night when the, when the Pharisees brought Jesus to him and the soldiers presented it to him. But there's something that caught my attention so much. And I don't know if you see it, but right there, in the middle of the floor, there is a, a stone and there is a ring attached to it. You see it? That ring can be moved but it is attached to the, to the floor. The reason why that ring is there is because when someone was brought to trial before the governor, and this, in the case of Jesus' story, was Pontius Pilate, 
the accused was chained to that ring so that if he tried to escape, it could not go anywhere. Let me tell you something, family. Jesus chose to be chained and held by that ring. Jesus chose to be held so that we could have freedom. And even though that ring could not hold his power, he chose, he chose to be held by that single ring so that all of us, all of us could be within his ring of love. So when, the, when, when the, the message of Jesus bringing freedom and removing guilt and sin was preached by the disciples, the Christian church began to grow. The second reason why this group grew, grew so much is that they had a message that says, I don't have to live alone anymore. I don't have to live alone anymore. You see, one of the hardest things for us as human beings is to say goodbye. We're not designed to say goodbye. We're not designed to experience separation. But we always do it, though. Just last night, we took Gino to the airport. And, and I, I pray that I see him again. Because, you know, we live in a world of sin. But... We're kind of used to saying goodbye to our children. Johnny's over there, who knows where, 5,000 miles away. But something caught my attention yesterday. Gino has a friend, really close friend. Maybe you've seen her here at church. When they said goodbye... I saw tears on her face. And, and I'm thinking, he's coming back. You're not even married. You know, he's my son. Not... But see, the reality is that we are not designed to say goodbye. Separation was something that was not in the original plan. Separation was something that was brought to us because of sin. And that is why in our nature, in the innermost part of ourselves, we suffer when we have to tell a loved one, see you later. And God knew that. And God knew how difficult it was going to be for the disciples to say goodbye. And after, after he resurrected from, 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 and came out of the tomb, he presented himself to the disciples. And, and in a reading of the book of Acts last week, we, we read that he appeared to them and many others for 40 days. And the Bible says that he cleared any doubts that he was alive. And see, because Jesus knows, God knows, that it's so difficult for us to separate from our loved ones. And now when Jesus tells the disciples, guys, you know what? I'm leaving. What? You just came back. But you're not going to be alone. I'm going to live with you, a comforter. I'm going to live with you, my presence. I'm going to live with you, my power. I'm going to live with you, the Holy Spirit. 
Notice what the Bible says in Acts 1.8. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power and will tell people everywhere about me in Jerusalem, through Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But see, let me explain to you how the Holy Spirit works. Because see, we, we have all these kinds of misconceptions of the Holy Spirit. But I, I want to explain it to you in a very simple way. I have with me here a volleyball. This is a brand new official volleyball. It's clean, it's perfect, and it's very expensive, except that it doesn't have air inside. And you see, the thing about volleyballs is that they need to have air inside to work properly. And you see, what happens is that oftentimes we think, well, as long as I'm clean on the outside, I'm okay. As, as long as I look... The part, I'm okay. But it's not about the external appearance. It's not about the, I, I, we know it's a volleyball, right? So it's not about the identity. It's about what's inside. So I'm going to ask an expert to come up here. Giovanni, where are you? Oh, he's helping with communion. Uh, Matthew, come. Yeah. You're another expert. This is a highly sophisticated pump. Okay? So we're going to put it here. And your job is going to be to pump it. Now, let me explain to you what is happening right now. We are the volleyball. Don't be afraid. Squeeze like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> we are like this volleyball. And what we need is to have in us the Holy Spirit. Crazy thing, because in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is known as air. In Hebrew, is the, the breath of God is the ruach. And in the New Testament is the word pneuma, which means wind. In Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to give you a little preview for the reading for this week. It says that when the disciples were praying all together in the upper room. Good job. Don't leave yet. They were praying in the upper room. says that a strong wind filled the house. It was the presence of the Holy Spirit. So what happens is. Oh, no, not yet. Is that every time, every time I pray, God is pumping His Spirit in me. Every time I read the Scripture, God is pumping His Spirit in me. Every time I make a decision, being guided by the will of God, the Holy Spirit is acting in me. So I get more pump and more air and more of His presence, more of His power to the point that now I'm useful. So guess what? Now that the Holy Spirit is in me, now I can be used for the purpose that God made me to be. That is 
the promise that we will never be alone because the Spirit of God will be with me. And that promise is given to all of us. Thank you, Matthew. You were awesome. Now you can, I can keep that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, if you thought that's powerful, let me tell you something. The same power that raised Christ from the death. Let me say that again. The same power that raised Christ from the death is available to us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. This is not something that I made up. Paul said it right here. Look, Ephesians 1, verse 19 and 20. I pray that you will begin to understand how incredibly great his power to help those who believe him. It is the same mighty power. Are you with me? It is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the death. So if you believe the promise of Christ that we will not be alone, that same power that removed the rock and made the earth shake, it's available to us. But you have to believe that you will never be alone. That the presence of God is with you. And see, one of the things that we share in the, in, in, in the conversation on Thursday uh, on Facebook is that one of the problems that we have when we pray is that we pray for things. We pray for, for, for events to happen. We pray for protection. We pray for our, our wish list. But one of the things that happened in that upper room with the disciples is that they didn't pray for any of that. They prayed in the upper room for the presence of God with them. And if there's something that we need to pray today for, it's for the presence of God in our lives. And then all those other things will happen. Power to be free. Power over sin. Power over your past. Power over to bad choices. Because that same power that raised Christ is available to us. The third thing that made this group of Christians grow to the size that are today is that they had a message. And the message is that I am loved unconditionally. I am unconditionally loved by God. See, God is love and he made us to be loved. There is nothing you can do for God to love you less, and there's nothing you can do for God to love you more. His love is consistent, it's unconditional, and it's permanent. And because He made us to be loved, He also wants us to learn to love the way He loves. In John 3, 16, you, you know this verse, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But the one that we forget sometime is verse 17. Check this out. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But to save the world through him. So if I would, were to ask you a question. Do you know how God feels about you? Do you know how God feels about you? See, 
in my office at, at, at home, uh, there's a door. And behind that door, I have a bunch of drawings. A bunch of drawings that were not made by experts. They were not made by professional artists. They were made by one and two-year-old kids. And they're hanging on my door. I painted that office. I changed stuff. I moved it around many times. But those papers are still there. You know why? Because they were made by my children. And regardless of what they do, regardless of how they look like now. Because they're not little kid bundles of joy now. I love them. And I'm proud of them. Because they are my children. That is exactly the same way that God feels about you. He is proud of you. And see, the thing, is, the thing about God is that God sees the end from the beginning. You heard that before? And this is what happened. God sees what will happen with you, what you will become if you choose right. But at the same time, He sees what will happen to you, what will become of you if you choose wrong. So He sees both things. At the same time. That is why in Genesis chapter 6, when he talks about the flood, he says that he felt remorse that he had created man. Depends on the Bible version that you read. He regretted, says other more traditional version of created man. It's not that he said, oh man, I shouldn't have made him. No. It's that he saw. Their tendencies. And we read in chapter 6 of Genesis that he saw that all the thinking, all the thoughts of their minds were continuous towards evil. So he knew that there was no turning back for them. So the best way, the best, the most loving way was to start again. Because they had already made their choice. And that he allowed them to continue that way. No one would ever have the opportunity to be redeemed. So even that destruction, God made it out of love. In John 13, verse uh, 34 says, Jesus said, I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. And this is the most interesting part right here. Your love for one another. Are you with me? Don't miss this part. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Now, I don't know if you see it here. It doesn't say your knowledge of prophecy will show to the world. Your knowledge of diet and how well you wear ties. No. No. Your love for one another. Because we could be like the ball. That is half inflated. We could have the identity. We could be brand new, clean, perfect on the outside. But it is the inside that makes all the difference. And the inside can only be shown by love. In the past I've told you that there's two ways to love. And this is exactly the same way that God designed it from the beginning. Adam was designed to love God first. A relationship with his creator. But this is what happens. How 
Listen carefully. How you love God is demonstrated in the way you love other people. How you love God and how you accept God's love is demonstrated in the way that you love the people around you. Even those who are not so lovable. John put it like this. He, he, John is known as the theologian of all the disciples. And he puts it like this in 1 John 3, verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are. This is how we know who the children of God are. Anyone who does not obey God's commands and doesn't love others is not a child of God. What is he saying? Love God, love others. So anyone who says he's a child of God, but he might say he loves God, but if it's not loving anyone else, it's not really a child of God. This is a message we've heard from the beginning that we must love each other. There's not a more powerful example of God's love in the life of an individual than the experience of the Apostle Paul. We remember that Paul did not begin his life as a disciple. In fact, he began his life as a Christian killer. He knew everything about the law. He knew the scriptures. But he didn't love the God of the scriptures. I think he loved himself more than anyone else. So one day, he decided to ask the, the, the high priest to give him license. Not just to take, uh, take chase of Christians in Jerusalem, but to chase them in Damascus. And he goes to the capital of Assyria. And as he's going over there on the road, he encounters the one who is love. And Jesus appears before him. And Paul falls to the ground. And there was a light. A light so bright that blinded him for a while. The only thing that Paul could do was to hear a voice talking to him. Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? From that moment, the life of Paul changed in such a way that instead of being a Christian killer, he became the apostle of love. You don't believe me? Have you ever read 1 Corinthians 13? He wrote it. But the most amazing thing is that he said, I could know prophecy. I could be a prophet. I could be a teacher. I could do all these things. But if I don't have love, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. Because the most important currency in the universe is love. Because it's love the only thing. It is love is the only thing that can pay for your sins and for mine. Love is the only thing that can transform the hardest heart into the softest thing. And that is why today we are celebrating that love.
We are celebrating that in a little bit, we become a little bit more like Jesus. And through the emblems of communion, through the washing of feet, we've learned that we learn to love one another better. That we learn to accept that when we trust in the promises of Jesus, we can receive his power. And that as we experience communion, we remember how to love and love like God does. So we're going to go outside after I pray. And there's going to be rooms for families. See, we believe that that, uh, that last moment that Jesus was with the disciples, after having the last supper, They had experienced already an act of love. And that act of love was that Jesus bent down his knees, wore the, the, the towel of a servant, and washed the feet of the disciples. So we're going to do that. And we have rooms separated for families, for, for, for men, for women. So choose someone that you want to love today. And then we come back. When we come back, we sing a couple of songs, and then we partake of the emblems of communion. One of the things that we believe as a, as, as, as a Christian Adventist church here is that we believe in open communion. And what that means is that you don't need to be a member of our church to partake of communion. But you do need to believe in one thing, that Jesus is the only one that can pay for your sins. And if you believe that, then you can be part of our of our experience today. We also believe that every opportunity that we have to experience communion, it's a reminder that there's something greater than, than me, that there's something greater than us that we can experience today, but also is preparing us for an eternity in heaven.